All right. Well, good morning. Hope all of you are doing well. Want to welcome those of you maybe joining us online or maybe from one of our campuses. Maybe you are in Somerville or North Charleston today. Glad you are with us. Hey, here in Mount Pleasant and at all the campuses, if you are thankful that we can be in a whole bunch of different places but still be one Seacoast family, put your hands together. I'm thankful for that. My name is Adam Martin. I get to be part of the team here at Seacoast. And let me kick off today with a question, just a simple question. If, if there was one character trait that could lift the trajectory of your life and your relationships, would you want to know what it is? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, of course we would all want to know, right? So if any of you figure it out, you let me know. We'll talk about it, okay? Actually, we're going to do that just today. We're going to talk about one characteristic that can improve our lives and improve our relationships. But before I do, let me, let me share with you a quick story just to set it up. So if you've been here at Seacoast for very long, you know that Christmas time, around Christmas Eve, we have about 100 services across all campuses. It's crazy. And so sometimes we end up at some of our campuses not just having Christmas Eve services, but Christmas Eve Eve services. And so the, one of those years, a few years back, we had services on the 23rd at 5 and 7 p.m., and it was a terrible day, like awful weather, windy, rainy, just not a great day to go to church. And so, I, I, you know, sometimes when that happens around here at the beach, that can kick up the waves. So I thought, well, I got some time. I'll pack up my church clothes and go down to the beach and surf for a little while before I need to be there. So I did, went down, surfed for a bit, then I went back to my car to shower off and then head to church, which if you don't know what that looks like, let me explain. So you take this, and then you take this, and that's a surf shower. That's all it takes right there. And, and if you're going someplace real special, you take a little bit of this, and you're all set, right? Anybody who has surfed has done this. I promise you, if they've surfed for very long, they've done this. For, for me, this is a pretty regular thing, but I recognize I have a pretty different getting ready for church kind of program. And so it's real fun, though, when you're, when you're doing this, when you're having a little surf shower at your car and someone pulls up beside you because they want your parking spot. So they roll their window down. They're like, hey, hey, are you leaving? And I have to be like, yeah, well, I'm leaving, but I'm, I'm showering off first. Oh, no problem. And I think they're going to drive away and they just back it up. And then they turn on the blinker and they sit there while I shower. So this is to all the weirdos who have ever watched me shower off after a surf. You made it weird. But here I was. I, I, after my shower, I'm getting dressed, getting ready to come to church. It's, you know, it's Christmas Eve, so I got dressed a little nicer. So I have a nice, clean, white shirt. And as I'm getting ready to put it on, I drop it. And it hits the wet ground. It's game over for the shirt. Like, there's no cleaning it. There's no time to run back home and get another one, but I did know there was a store on the way to church, so I thought, okay, no problem. Time for a new white shirt anyway. So I won't tell you the name of the store, but it rhymes with Old Gravy. And so I go into the store, and I grab a couple shirts, just because I don't know which size I'm, I'm going to be. So I grab a couple, run into the dressing room, and I'm getting, you know, I'm trying them on, and I guess the attendant saw me, and so she knocks on the door. She goes, you okay in there, hon? And I said, yes, ma'am, just trying on two shirts, trying to figure out which one works. She says, well, come on out. I'll tell you. And I was like, I didn't plan on modeling these shirts, but can't be any more weird than showering in front of somebody while they're sitting in their car. So I come out and she goes, oh, don't you look nice? And I thought, I do look nice. 
Like, especially after a surf shower, I look pretty good. And she goes, the, the shirt is perfect, but those pants don't work at all. I was like, well, these are the pants I came in with. So these are my pants. And it was one of those really awkward moments that reminded me of how important it is to be humble. Because humility is that one thing that can improve the quality of our life and relationships. And here's why I say that. If you've been, I'm very self-conscious about my pants right now. <laughs> I feel like y'all are judging me too. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a series called Set the Tone, where we're looking at a verse out of the book of Colossians that lists five characteristics that if we can cultivate these character traits in our lives, they could lift the trajectory of our relationships and our lives, set a whole different kind of tone. So to put us on the same page, let me read the verse for us. This is from Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And before we talk about why humility is a part of this verse, let me give you a little bit of context, just on, in case you don't know much about the letter or about who wrote it. Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it when he was in prison. He wrote it to a group of people that he'd never met before. And while he had never met them, he had heard about them. He'd heard about their faith and the impact they were having, but he also heard that they were facing tremendous pressure to conform. They were facing pressure from the Jews to abandon Jesus and worship God through a strict obedience of the law. And they were facing pressure from the Greeks to abandon Jesus and worship God, many gods actually, through a kind of mystic spirituality that involved pleasure and power and wealth and a lot like our country today. And so here Paul is, having heard about these people but never having met them. Chapter 1 is, is a poem that leads us into chapters two through four, which talk about the new life in Christ that leads us to freedom. And to make his point, Paul repeatedly uses a contrasting picture of two things just to kind of highlight the difference of where we were versus where we were meant to be. He says things like this. He says, you were dead in your sins. You were dead because of your sins. Then God made you alive with Christ. You see the contrast? For he forgave all our sins. And he does this repeatedly over and over throughout the letter. Paul wants to make it really clear that there is a difference. Or there should be a difference between who we were and who we are in this relationship with God. And the reason Paul's so qualified to talk about it is because he saw this difference, this contrast in his own life. He knows that the person he used to be is not the person he was made to be. And what makes Paul so uniquely qualified to talk to us about humility is because he used to be so dangerously proud. And so if you, if you don't know, Paul, he, he was on this trajectory in his life to become a prominent leader within Judaism. I mean, he was devout and legalistic. And he, he, didn't, he didn't have much tolerance for anybody who was less devoted than he was. In fact, he says in another letter about himself, he says this. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He was incredibly proud. 
of his Jewish heritage and his religious resume. And the fact that Paul walked away from that to follow Christ is a miracle by itself. But because there was such a contrast between who he used to be versus who he was becoming, his life set a completely different kind of tone as he started to cultivate things like humility in his life. And incidentally, if you read Paul's letters in the order they were written, I know that many of you probably read through the Bible, but that's not necessarily the order of how things were written chronologically. Like, yes, Genesis was first, but Job was kind of in the middle of that book than the rest of Genesis. If you read it chronologically, it'd look a little different. Paul's letters in the way they're listed in the New Testament aren't chronological either. But if you read them chronologically in his first letter in Galatians, this is how he introduces himself. You can see this transformation taking place. And as he moved into this relationship with Christ, became more and more humble. So Galatians, his first letter, he says this. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, not by any man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Kind of got his chest puffed out a little bit still, right? And then by the time he wrote Romans, he says simply, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And then by the time he writes Ephesians, he says this, he is the least of the Lord's people. And then in in 1 Timothy, one of his very last letters, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Quite a transition that you see there, isn't it? Quite a transformation. There's a correlation between humility and our intimacy with God. The closer we become to God, the more humble we become. Because the more we realize just what kind of debt he covered for us. And so as we talk about humility today, we're going to use Paul's method in this letter. We're going to contrast two ends of a spectrum. We're going to look at humility against pride. And so let's start with a little self-assessment. How do you know if you're humble or proud? How do you know? It's kind of difficult to tell, right? So let's just look at one side of it for a second. How do you know if you're proud? Because that'd be important to know. But I did a little research And here's what I came up with. There's a list. There is a much longer list. I shortened it for you. You're welcome. So it's a list of things that if you you can answer these questions one way or another, you might be a prideful person. So signs that you might be a prideful person. This is kind of like the Christian version of you might be a redneck if, you know. So you might be a prideful person. Here we go. Are you easily offended or are you quick to defend yourself? Easily offended or quick to defend yourself. Anybody? Yeah. Don't look at your neighbors about you. Yeah. All right. How about the next one? Here we go. Do you ask for exceptions a lot? Because this could mean that you think the rules shouldn't apply to you. Or this one. Are you often critical of other people? Because this is a lot of times how proud people will build themselves up. This is one that probably get a lot of us. Do you spend a lot of time on your physical appearance. Pride loves a spotlight, loves to be noticed. Here's one. I like this one. Are you a here I am person or are you a there you are person? Another way to say that might be, are you a, let me tell you what I think person or are you a, tell me what you think person. And last sign, last sign that you might be a prideful person. Did you answer no to all of these questions? That was mine. I just contributed that one for you. 
We may not want to admit it. We may not want to admit it, but pride is something we all deal with on some level. So show of hands, because we're all family here and at the campuses and online. How many of you answered yes to one of those questions? There you go. A lot of hands. You look around, you don't see a hand up. Those are liars in the room right there. Okay. How many of you answered yes to two or more of these questions? Yeah, still lots of hands. How about three or more? Okay. How many of you think your neighbor should have their hand up right now? Yeah. Yeah. We live in a culture that is where, where pride is just so pervasive that it's hard to tell anymore. Are we proud? So today we're going to look at why Paul thinks pride is a problem, why it's so important to cultivate humility in our lives. So here's the first point on your outline. Let's jump into it. If, if you're, I don't even know if we don't even do the things anymore. So whatever. Here we go. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friends. Your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. One of the reasons that we see pride mentioned so often in scripture is because God hates pride. He hates it. And the reason he hates it is because he knows what it will do to us. He knows that pride will destroy us. David knew this. David understood it. He wrote this in Psalm 31. He said, the Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. And Peter writes this in one of his letters. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then Matthew writes in his gospel, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis. And so that's probably not a surprise to many of you because I quote him all the time. But he, he talked a lot about pride. And here's what he says. He says that. Make no mistake, pride is the greatest sin. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. Pride leads to every other vice. It is an anti-God state of mind. It is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Safe to say C.S. Lewis has some big feelings on pride, right? But he's right. He's right. Because pride entitles us in our minds to do things to one another that are just unspeakable. Pride also emboldens us to say to the God who made us, thanks, God, but I'll take it from here. Thanks for the life that you made for me, but I got it now. And pride is often what precedes deception because pride is usually at the heart of every misinterpretation of scripture. Pride tells us that we can shape God and his word into whatever suits our life choices, which is dangerous. On the other hand, just as pride comes before the rejection of God and his word, humility often helps us to submit to the authority of God and his word. Humility allows us to see God as he truly is, not as we may want him to be. And this is because humility keeps us open to the possibility that we might be wrong. And that all we think we know about God may not be all there is to know about God. Tim Keller talks about a season in his life when he was leaving for college. And he'd grown up in a Christian home all his life. He knew a lot about God, but he wasn't sure he wanted to continue to be a Christian, not in college anyway, which is he thought, you know, college would be the opportunity for him to kind of break free and explore. 
but he found himself in this freshman religion class, which was confusing for him. And so he, he picked up two books. He picked up Basic Christianity by John Stott and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, arguably the two best apologetic works in the last hundred years, which all that means is if you're looking for evidence that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did, these are a great place to start. But he found himself in this class, read these two books, and they totally messed up his plans. He thought, he thought he could keep God contained within this neat little area of his life, and then he could have authority over the rest. But he was humbled by a picture that God gave him as he was reading these two books. And later in his life, he framed it as an analogy. And he says this, imagine, imagine a friend was at your house and a debt collector came by uh, for repayment on a debt and they paid your debt. They paid your debt for you. How many of you would be thankful? Yeah, of course, we'd all be thankful for that. But would it change your life? Well, now that depends on the size of the debt, doesn't it? That depends on the size of the debt. Let's say it was a, a water bill, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, right? You might be like, well, thanks. That's really thoughtful of you. I appreciate that. It's really thoughtful. Let's say it was your monthly mortgage payment or your rent payment. You might think, you, you have no idea how, how helpful that'll be to us this month. Thank you so much for doing that. Say it was your entire mortgage. For most people, that represents hundreds of thousands of dollars. You'd be blown away by that act of generosity, wouldn't you? Now, let's say it was a tax bill, a tax bill that you kind of knew was there, but you just hoped it would kind of go away. Wouldn't be a big deal. And as it turns out, it became a very big deal, kept earning interest until it became an amount of money so large that you wouldn't be able to repay it in 10 lifetimes. So as much as they were coming to collect on the debt, they were really coming to take you to prison for the rest of your life. Say your friend paid off that debt for you. You'd be speechless. You wouldn't know what to say, but you would owe them your life. You see, he was humbled to discover that God's mercy towards him was far greater than he'd ever imagined. And he discovered that the thirst he felt within himself was not for this world. It was for the presence of the God who paid his debt and set him free. Are we humble enough? Are we humble enough to take a fresh look at God, even if it means he might change our lives forever? Are we humble enough to admit that what we know about God may not be all there is to know about God? You see, the proud person can't do this because they know everything already. But the humble person can remain open to whatever God wants to reveal about himself and about us. And that's why Paul thinks humility is so important. Because without humility, we will never surrender to the God who took our debt upon himself. That's why pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. Now, the second point on your outline is this. Pride separates and humility connects. Pride separates, humility connects. Now, most of us think of pride as that which makes people arrogant or boastful. And it's, that's true. It is that. But that's just one side of pride because pride is really anything that it's just an unrelenting focus on the self. That's what pride is. And so in that regard, pride, like a lot of things, has a spectrum. It can be arrogance or egomania, but it can also be insecurity. 
or low self-esteem because both will cause us to hyper-focus on ourselves. And C.S. Lewis says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And the reality is that we could all benefit from thinking of ourselves a little less. Some of us struggle to think of ourselves less because we have an inflated sense of who we are. We like being the center of attention. It's frustrating when we're not. Some of us struggle to think of ourselves less because we have a deflated sense of who we are. We think too little of ourselves. All we see are our shortcomings and our faults. It's quite a spectrum, isn't it? One group thinks they can never get it wrong. Another group thinks they can never get it right. But both create an unhealthy focus on the self. And and to make this harder, you're probably not one or the other. Most of us are both. Sometimes we're arrogant. Sometimes we're insecure. Now, here's the part of the message that I really didn't want to share with you. But my wife is she's a very wise woman. And Dana always encourages me to be vulnerable, which I don't like, but I'll do it just for you. So when I was younger, uh, this was this was very hard for me. And I don't think a lot of people knew this because I, I did a pretty good job of hiding it. But I get teased about it now. People will say to me, hey, you're good at everything. You're good at everything you do, which is not true. But I am good at a lot of things. And I know you're sitting there thinking, hey, take it down a notch, buddy. You're talking about humility today. <laughs> like, I hear it. I, I do hear it. But the reason I'm good at a lot of things is because I felt like I had to be. You see, as a kid, I was unconfident and insecure. I did not think very much of myself. And I was pretty sure that everyone else felt that way about me. And so I worked hard, very hard to take away anybody's reasons to feel about me the way I felt about myself. If I took on something, I intended to master it. And so the end result was that I became good, in some cases very good, at a lot of things. And as much as I would love to tell you that this is dead in me as an adult, it can still sneak up on me. And almost everything I take on, I will seek to be very good at it. And there's almost no scenario in which someone can outwork me. But I know, I know, and I'm ashamed to admit it, that this is because I'm still, in so many ways, trying to prove my value and worth. You see, regardless of which side of the spectrum you may fall on, whether you struggle to think of yourself less because of self-centeredness or you struggle to think of yourself less because of insecurity, Both can have a very dangerous impact in our lives. One tells us we don't really need anyone. And so we don't pursue authentic relationships with people who can call us out and challenge us. The other tells us that we're not worthy. And we might get rejected if we pursue those relationships. So why bother? But both leave us in the same dangerous place. Isolated. Peter wrote about this in one of his letters. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. It's one of those verses that paints a really vivid picture. If you consider how lions hunt packs of animals, they don't just charge straight in. They slowly prowl up to the pack. The goal first 
is to get close without being noticed. And then it's honestly a lot of the times how sin sneaks up on us in our lives, isn't it? But then as they've gotten close, they'll kind of make themselves visible. And as the pack reacts and starts to run, they'll just jog behind. Again, not charging after the pack. They'll just kind of keep pace until one animal makes the decision to split off from the pack. And then they leave the pack behind and all of them go into full chase mode on that one animal. And it's game over. It's the animal's decision to leave the pack that ultimately leads to its death. And if you look at this verse in the Greek, it's much shorter. It doesn't say be alert and of sober mind. It simply says, wake up, wake like someone's got their hands on your face. Wake up. Don't you know that the enemy's only goal here is to make you believe that it is okay to be isolated. That It's okay to be isolated. You don't need anybody. We can't afford to let that happen. Not in our lives and not in the lives of the people we care about. So if pride separates and humility connects, then we have got to figure out how to cultivate humility in our lives because it's scientifically proven. We don't even need to talk about it. Humans don't do well in isolation. COVID all taught us that, right? We all lost our ever loving minds. So how do we do it? How do we grow in humility? I'll give you three words today that if you can begin to think or say regularly enough, they will promote humility in your life. But before I do that, before I do, let me say this. We've got to be intentional about this. We have to be intentional about this. Remember the verse. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. He uses that word clothe here to remind us that humility, like these other things, are something we're going to have to put on every day. Just like we made a decision about what to wear today. I don't know if some of you saw your... Kids walked down the stairs or out of their bedrooms this morning and thought, really? That was, that was your choice. That's what you're wearing today. To be fair, some of you thought it about your husbands. And if you could get in your husband's head, he would be thinking, yep, don't care. Don't care. But we all make an intentional decision about what to put on every day, don't we? Humility is no different. We will have to make a decision to put it on every day. And if we don't, if we're not intentional about this, it will be very easy to leave the house without it. But here are the three words that will help promote humility in your life. You ready? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Think about it. If the arrogant person can say, maybe I'm wrong, then they can begin to acknowledge that they're not right all the time. They're not awesome all the time. They're not the most important person in every room and they can see the value of other people and maybe become less self-centered. And if the insecure person can say, maybe I'm wrong, then they can begin to acknowledge that their assessment of their own value and worth may not be accurate. Maybe the God who made them and his perspective of their value and worth is more accurate than their own distorted perspective. And, and let me do this, if I could, just to settle it real quick. If any of you might struggle with the question of how does God feel about me? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. That was his declaration of your value and worth on a trash heap 
outside of Jerusalem, he traded his only son for you. He couldn't have made it more clear than by what he did on the cross. That is how valuable you are in terms of how we relate to one another. If we can get to a place where we recognize our value and the value of other people, then the arrogant person can stop craving acknowledgement and the insecure person can stop craving affirmation. And just imagine how this would impact our lives and our relationships. Imagine how this would affect the cultural climate that we're in right now. Imagine if our leaders approached each other with this posture. Imagine if we approached each other like this. Maybe I'm wrong. It can help us cultivate the kind of humility that can set a new tone for us to genuinely connect with one another. So pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride separates humility connects. And here's the last point for you. Pride will never surrender and humility surrendered for us. All I want to do in this last point is share a story with you. In John chapter eight, we meet a woman. You may have heard the story, a woman who was caught in adultery and the people who caught her brought her before Jesus. They said, teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law says that we should stone her to death. What do you say? The whole, the whole scene was a setup. It was a trap for Jesus. They didn't care about the woman. The religious leaders had heard about all the different times that he had shown grace to tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, people they believed were sinners. And they thought if we can put this adulterous woman in front of him, he'll show her mercy too. And then we can point at him as a heretic who does not uphold the Jewish law. That was their goal. But Jesus flipped the script on him. He totally turns the tables and he says, you know what? You're right. You're right about the law. You're right about the punishment. We should stone her to death. But let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then it says, slowly, they all dropped their rocks and they walked away. And then Jesus looked at the woman and said, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. He said, then neither do I condemn you, but go and leave this life of sin. It's clearly not working for you. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God and the mercy that leads us towards the freedom he died to bring us. There's something else here that can be really easy to miss. Between verses 6 and 8, we see something twice that changes everything. The religious leader's question to Jesus was, what should we do with her? Verse 6 says, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And I know you might be thinking, finally, finally, someone's going to tell me what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Sorry to disappoint you. I'm not. <laughs> I can't. 
In fact, the best commentaries all agree we're all just speculating when it comes to what he wrote in the dirt that day. That's what can make this easy to miss as we focus on what Jesus wrote in the dirt. We miss sight. We, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus, a first century Jewish man, bent down before a woman twice. This is something Jewish men did not do. He stooped or lowered himself, as the Greek says, before a woman and a sinful woman at that. Now, let me just say this, too, as a somewhat of a disclaimer. Anyone who would tell you that the Bible is misogynistic against women, they haven't read it or they certainly don't understand it because Jesus does more to lift up women in three years of public ministry than any culture has done in thousands. But here we are. Here we are, Jesus having bent down before a sinful woman, not once, but twice. According to the cultural context, it should never have happened. This was not something that Jewish men would do. And Jesus makes it clear he's not doing it on accident by doing it twice. It was an ultimate display of humility. <laughs> it was also Jesus's way of saying to the religious leaders, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're wrong about how the law of God was designed to work. There will be a punishment. There will be a death, but it won't be hers and it won't come from these rocks. It'll be me and it'll come from a cross. Jesus does something here that blatantly defied the Jewish tradition. They would all have all been very offended by it. It was a display of humility, but it was also a display of how he intended to deal with our sin. Twice Jesus lowered himself before a woman and twice he would lower himself before the world he created. Once when he entered it as a vulnerable baby and a second time when he left it after hanging on a cross. You see, without humility, there would never have been a cross because pride never surrenders. But humility, in humility, Jesus surrendered for us. And if we can begin to live in that kind of humility, the kind that he modeled, then we can begin to set a new tone in our lives, our relationships, and our culture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you stooped down from heaven twice, once to enter it and once to enter into our pain. And I pray that the reality of that, how amazing that picture is, that it would stick with us, that it would mess with us in such a way that we would have the courage to step in to whatever, whatever the next is for us, Lord. We believe you died to set us free. Help us to step into that freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the next few minutes, we want to give you guys a chance just to respond to God. And the easiest way to do it is to kind of work through two questions. What is God saying to me and what do I want to do with that? You know, in John chapter 8, a lot of the commentaries 
say that when Jesus bent down, what he did in the sand was he drew a line. It was his way of saying, I know what the past has been, but I also know what the future is going to be because of the sacrifice I'm about to make. Maybe today is a day for you to draw a line in the sand, acknowledging that the person you've been is not the person you, have, you were made to be. And if that's you, I just encourage you to come to a cross today. Write down on a piece of paper, maybe a word that describes who you've been. But then I want you to draw a line. Write down another word that describes the person you were made to be, the one you're being called into. Pin it to the cross as your way of saying, today is that line. I'm drawing it in the sand. But remember, you can't do this alone. None of us can. And so tell somebody, have them pray with you. Maybe come to someone on our prayer team today, have them pray over you. Or you may want to light a candle today. First John 1, 5 says that God is light in him. There is no darkness. As you light that candle today, pray that God would tear through any darkness in your life and show you who he is. But as he does, pray that you would be humble enough to receive whatever he shows you and to go wherever he leads you. And also as a part of response time, I want to encourage us to come and take communion, to celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed that we might be set free. You don't have to be a member of our church, just a member of the body of Christ. And finally, I want to encourage us all to give generously. I know that can be hard and it can be scary. We could never repay the debt God paid on our behalf. Giving is our way of surrendering everything. Sometimes that's the last domino to fall. So let's continue in worship together. As we respond to what is God saying to you? And what do you want to do with that today? Let's respond.